welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review kindly. This show is a series of conversations with educators and learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Hello and welcome to the episode. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with me today. I have Nat, an educator of 16 years, on the show today. She teaches both English and psychology in a secondary setting. I met Nat for the first time in 2007 when I was on my teaching rounds for my dip ed. She was already in her third year by that time and I remember the first class I saw her teach was a year 11 English class. Now, I might be being a little generous when I say she's pushing 5'2". But to be fair, Nat is a tiny individual and yet when she walks into a classroom, she commands attention. She has such presence. She fills the room with her knowledge and her wisdom. She has a sarcastic, cutting humor about her, which the kids absolutely love. And to be honest, whenever students find out we have some sort of connection, I immediately gain credibility, which is incredible for me as an emergency teacher when I'm working at that school. Nat is very generous in this episode. She discusses personal challenges that she has faced, the importance of seeing kids in your classes as individuals and teaching the whole learner, not just the grade or towards the grade or the test. We dissect some of our early teaching practices and the evolution that our teaching has taken over time. There's so much gold in here. She is a teacher at her core and I know that there's just so much advice and support and wisdom in in this for everybody. So here is the chat with my amazing teacher friend, Nat. Hello, Nat. How are you going? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. So I have introed you already, so I won't get into how we know each other because that's already been discussed. Oh, I want to know what you said. Oh, you have to listen to the podcast. You have to listen. That's a good point. (laughs) So what I'd like to start with is I'd love you to describe what kind of learner you are and were as a younger individual. I'm very much a visual learner. So someone had to demonstrate something to me. They had to give me a clear example of what the end point of the task that I was doing was in order for me to show any form of motivation and understanding of it whatsoever. I had to be told, this is the task. This is how you're getting there. This is what it will look like when it's done. And here's several diagrams in between so that I can actually understand what's going on. So hearing something for you was not good enough? No, because I actually have a hard time comprehending things if they're simply said to me rather than actually written down because of my dyslexia. So talk to me about what it was like learning with dyslexia. Was that picked up straight away and what kind of strategies were employed to help you learn? They discovered that I was dyslexic when I was in grade two. So I wrote an entire story backwards to my grade two teacher and she had to use a mirror in able to understand it. Back then it was like the 80s. So actually physically backwards. Yeah, yeah, completely backwards, like the whole thing, Mm -hmm. several pages of it backwards. And it was, yeah, you could, like I could read it, obviously, but she couldn't. So the only way to get around it was to use a mirror. And she spoke to my mum and dad and basically said, something's not right with your kid. (laughs) Um, And because it was the 80s, no one really cared about learning disabilities and stuff like that. So my dad basically ensured that I could read and write. So I could write and I could 
understand things, but it didn't help that I was also left-hander. So mm. everything was just very backwards and it would take quite a while for me to register what someone was saying. So they would say it, I could hear it, but I wasn't comprehending it and would flip itself around and stuff. So there was there was quite a bit of impatience with people. But yeah, dad basically just said, we're not going to let that stop you. And so in order to overcome it, I actually started reading very thick novels from a very early age so that I could fight it. So I have more trouble reading smaller words than I have trouble reading longer words. And I um, bead read so that my brain doesn't have time to jump over things. It's really interesting. I remember going to a reading course, like something about how to improve your reading speed. And what they actually identified is that most people read the same word three or four times yeah. and go backwards and forwards. And that's actually what slows you down. And so for that, for you is actually mm. more challenging, yeah, is it? It's, I have to, like, people drive me insane when they try to read to me over the phone. Like My younger sister does it a lot and she'll say to me, I need to read you something. And I'm like, no, 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 because... I can't take mm. it in because they read too slowly. And by the time they're up to their second line, the words have started to make no sense to me whatsoever. So I need to read at my own pace. From my perspective, I've heard that dyslexia involves misinterpreting letters, like you don't see all the letters or they sort of move around. Obviously, that's just the information I've received from other people. I'm wondering if you can give me a better analogy of that or an understanding. Yeah. So obviously everyone's dyslexia is different and I have what I would consider now quite a low level form of dyslexia, which only really comes up when I'm very tired Mm. or if someone is ironically talking too slow. (laughs) So the best, I describe my dyslexia to my kids like, imagine I am on a farm and I am on like a horse and I have a lasso. And every single word is represented by a different, like each letter is represented by a different animal. And so if you've got the word cat, then cat could be, the C could be a cow, the A could be a horse and the T could be a chicken. And when I see the word cat, I have to lasso those letters together really fast to join those letters together in the right way. Otherwise they run around and they just do their own thing. And if it's not a quick enough lasso to get the letters together, Mm. then cat will become act or tack. So that's the best way I can describe it. And that happens all within a split second. Yeah. Okay. I see that. Yeah. And it, it just, it's just one of those things, but like I said, some kids see waves through their work and yeah, some kids can't even see words like properly. They, it ends up being completely nonsensical information. I, I believe there's a, like somewhat of a lack of education around the fact that having dyslexia does not mean that you're stupid. And some people, like when I was in school, they would talk down to me like I didn't understand what was going on. I actually really did. And I usually got to the answer a lot quicker than someone else did because I had to employ different methods of problem solving than your average standard way would occur. So, but I would be assumed to be the one who wasn't as intelligent because I didn't Mm. do it like everyone else. But it was like, well, actually, no, I'm just as smart if not smarter, punks. Did you find reading, writing more challenging or is it all kind of a mixed bag for you? I found writing easy, but it was just backwards. I didn't have an issue with it at all. Um, I (laughs) I really enjoyed it and I still prefer to write backwards now. Like I'd way prefer to write backwards than forwards. Reading I found tricky, but I think it came down to more the fact 
that there wasn't much knowledge around it at the time. So you had to rely on support from your family. And to me, I had to just keep reading so that I wouldn't feel like I didn't know what I was doing. I did get very scared when teachers would ask us to read out loud. And I always asked my teachers to tell me what paragraph I would be reading out loud so I could practice it. And then I would read it very fast so that no one could pick up if I made a mistake. Mm. You know, it's so funny. I even think about things like that too, like reading out loud in class and feeling scared and having that, that what if I got it wrong, what would people think of me? Like, I think it's actually quite traumatic at times to ask students to read things out loud. As you said, like the, the opportunity to speak to your teacher privately and say, could you do it this way for me is actually so important and empowering for kids to be heard. And I don't know, I mean, we obviously went to the school in the nineties. I didn't feel like I could ask a teacher, Mm. can you do this for me? I just didn't Mm. feel like that was my right. Did you feel like that? Obviously, you were a bit better. You at least spoke to your teacher a bit. Well, it was certain teachers and I felt that I could, but it got to the point where I would, if I knew we were reading out loud, I'd sometimes just ask to go to the toilet so that I wasn't in the same room or, and I'd just take my time. Yeah. But it was, I now as a teacher, very rarely put a kid on the spot and ask them to read because I just don't want to do that to a kid. Yeah, I don't either. I think that that's rough as it makes it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, for I think if ever we're to do any kind of reading out loud, I'll do it in some kind of method where they know it's coming. But maybe now, now I'm thinking about that, maybe that's even worse. Maybe that's mm-hmm. even harder to know that it's coming and to sit there and worry about your time coming up. I will always ask a class who wants to read and mm. then I can pick who are the confident readers. And then I will say to someone at the end of that lesson, okay, you didn't have a chance to read today. Maybe next lesson you can read one line for me. And if they get through that one line, rock and roll. If they don't want to do it, I will never force them to do it ever. Yeah, I think that's so important. I just don't think it's right. Because you don't really know what's behind it, do you? No, you don't know that they've had no chance. What about high school? For me, Mm. Okay, well, I went to really quite a, an interesting high school. I'm not going to say the name because <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed high school. I love the fact that I went to quite a rough school. I like the fact that my mates were all quite ragtag. They definitely did their own thing. I like the fact that, I mean, our teachers were good, but they had to deal with a lot of behavioural issues. So in terms of an education, there was a lot of, like, you had to be quite self-motivated. And you had to really want to learn. Like I was a, quite a nerd, which was odd for the school that I went to. But I was talking to a mate the other day, and she said you're a cool nerd. And I'm like, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a thing. Mm-hmm. But sure, I would definitely do well in class, and my mates would cheat off me. But I also was the girl who was doctoring cigarettes for the boys out on the oval at lunchtime and making money from it. Well, so. I think that's what makes you the cool nerd. Then I think you've answered your question. Well, also dumb. But anyway, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Like our school, it was definitely interesting, but I think that I learned more from going to the school that I went to in how to become a teacher than anything I learned at university. Oh, well, I think that it's very hard to learn how to be a teacher in a classroom that you're not teaching in. Yeah. When you're a student listening to someone on how to teach, yeah. it's very difficult yeah. to get a real understanding of what it is at all. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> so what kinds of things did you learn about teaching? I knew how to de- I knew how to deal with kids who really didn't want to be in the room with you. Most of my mates did not want to be at school. Pretty much all of them, all the boys dropped out in year 10. I was regularly called a slut because I hung out with the boys and I learned how to deal with bitchy girls because of it. And yeah, I just learned that not everyone wants to be at school and that I was I did but they like 
to be in a classroom with 26 kids at the school that I went to, maybe 20 of them didn't want to be there. And yeah, so I learned Mm. how to talk to people who truly hated school. (laughs) But they've all gone on to be very successful people. And I also learned too that education like school smarts does not necessarily mean that's the only form of smarts that you can have. See, it's so interesting. My school experience, I went to a Catholic girls' school and we were very, very compliant and strict, you know, and it was all about the appearance of the school and how you represented the school and all of that. And, I mean, the minority of kids really were the ones that didn't want to be there and they sort of moved on pretty quickly, moved on to a school that was more appropriate for their needs. So it took me a lot longer. I think to deconstruct that belief that school and how we do things in school is the right way Mm. especially the school that I came from I don't think all schools are the same yeah I think no it's it's tricky because you like you are a product of your environment essentially and you're at such a formative time when you're in school that you like no one really remembers well I don't I don't know if many people remember university but I do know a lot of people remember their time in high school and it's because it kind of shapes your belief system to a degree. Well I think I felt like I was at school a lot longer than I was at university and yet I was at high school only one more year than I was at uni and uni Mm. to me was very quick so I think you're right Mm. yeah. I don't think like apart from a couple of mates I don't even remember university. (laughs) I'm kind of like oh yeah it happened. (laughs) don't care. (laughs) Well, you're kind of in and out and half the time you're trying to support yourself as well. And, you know, you're kind of like, well, what lectures can I skip in order to not be there that day? And it's just, it's, there's a whole other realm to university that doesn't exist at high school, I suppose. What was, speaking of, what was uni like for you? And considering where you had come from, was there any stigma or stereotype that was assigned to you? It's really funny because, like, I, and I try to tell kids this all the time. When you go to university, my experience was is that no one really cared mm-hmm. where you came from. No one really talked about your what was an enter school mm-hmm. back then. And but I do know that some kids still get ribbed for it. Like, but I guess it depends on which faculty you're in. I, uni was fine. Like, I didn't. I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't place a lot of emphasis on my university years. Like, it, it was a good opportunity for me to get lost. So I liked being alone. And if I didn't want to be around people, I didn't have to be. Whereas at school, I was. And I always had to be around people so I could turn my brain off a bit. But I never got involved in uni politics. I never got involved in any of that stuff. Like, power to the people who did, but it just wasn't my jam. So I basically went to uni, did what I need to do, came home and worked. And so what did you do at university? So a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Education with a triple major accidentally, which was annoying. So what was that? So I've got obviously the Bachelor of Education, and then I've got a degree in arts, which with a major in psychology, English literature, and professional writing with a minor in history, which is a nightmare. <laughs> I think, yeah. So if you could have selected your dream job outside of university as a teacher, what would it have been? Instead of instead of a teacher or as a teacher? No, as a teacher. Like, What was it that you wanted to teach? Like, What was it that you wanted your your first year to look like in terms of the subjects you had? I got everything I wanted basically. Like I left university, I and I got my dream job. Like I got a job in a state school, which I wanted. I didn't want to work in private or independent, not because of my differing belief systems because I'm actually religious, but just because I wanted to be a teacher in a school that I grew up in knowing that a teacher can make a real change. Obviously teachers can do that in any sector. 
but Mm. to me it was about kind of going back into my own sector and I got psychology in my first year and English in my first year and I was given VC and junior loads and I escalated quickly in terms of like within my second year I was teaching year 12 psychology so for me I got I landed really really well and I've stayed there ever since so similar so you have similar classes now and you've sort of carried that through I am fortunate enough to have been teaching there quite a while now that my allotment is usually really good. But I did, as most teachers do in my first couple of years, and I worked really, really, really hard and I um, took on almost probably too much in terms of VCE load. I eventually got to the point where I was teaching one year 12 psych class and one year 12 English class and a year 11 psych class and a middle school psych class and junior English and it was excessive and I was the assistant English coordinator so I was doing really well but I was also quite tired and it got to the point where I had to choose so I ended up losing psychology and spent more time in English because I think I could connect better with the kids then. So yeah, but I just over the years, it's just been a combination of one or the other or more one subject than the other. And yeah, I've been very fortunate to get work in both of my methods quite easily. And how long have you been teaching now? This is my 16th year, which is far out. (laughs) Oh my God. It's insane. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's scary to say that. My God, I still don't feel like I'm that old, but no, no, it's, it's, we're, we're getting into that middle band now. Oh, right? yeah. 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 I am considered a, an expert senior teacher. What? <laughs> I don't even know how to spell my own name. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> or you spell it backwards if you do, I suppose. Oh, well, exactly. Um, it's <laughs> unsettling to know that I am at the point where I am considered top of my field and I don't feel like I am not not as a humble brag or anything just I feel like I could always learn more and I don't ever want to feel like there's a massive separation between me and my students and not I don't want to feel like I know everything because once I feel like I think that I may as well not teach anymore oh I could not agree more but I I think even in these 16 years haven't you seen the children and the kids come through change their needs change, the way that they need to be Mm. delivered curriculum change. Like I found that even in the 10 years that I was in the classroom, what I was teaching them at the start was so different to how I would then teach it at the end or even from one year to the next because my kids would be so different. Yeah, Yeah, and they just, there's so much more. um, I mean, within 16 years sounds like a long time to be teaching, which it is, but within that, the evolution of everything has just like increased. So when we start, when I started teaching, social media wasn't a thing. And that's only 16 years ago. And some people are like, mm. social media has always been around. It's like, no, it hasn't. And now I've got to deal with kids who are, you know, heavily involved in social media. And so my teaching has to shift all the time. So in regards to social media, I mean, I think we were already cautious because I was already at university when Facebook even opened and you were already teaching I'm um, open to my God, I sound like an idiot. What, what, you know what I mean? Facebook <laughs> became a thing. I don't know. When, I don't even know how to say when, it. When the Facebook you know started. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So like, I was already in my teaching degree. So I was aware of the fact that I had to be careful, that I couldn't put things up. But I mean, kids that have got Facebook and and look, that's probably even showing my age because they're probably not even on there anymore. What are they on Instagram and TikTok? Yeah, they don't. I would be surprised if kids use them. They're so much younger. Yeah. And the thing is, I, as an adult, I'm so grateful 
that there was no, nobody had a camera in their pocket when I was going through all of those challenging formative times because you do make mistakes. It's normal and you you make decisions with an immature brain, right? And I don't want that documented. I'm glad it wasn't documented. So what do you think the impact is now of social media on kids and whose role is it to educate them on how to use it and how and the impacts it has on them? I think kids don't know how they're being affected by social media. I think that they think they know, mm. but I don't think that they know. That's very confusing. But I think that kids go, oh, yeah, I know that I shouldn't compare myself to people, blah, blah, blah. But it, they do subconsciously. So I think that they still require education in the privacy laws associated with social media because it is concerning to Mm. think about what they're posting and knowing that that is completely accessible to the general public and it's indelible. It's not, you can't erase it. It's there. And it's one thing to grow up in a generation where I, I have memories of the stuff that I did as a kid. And thank God no one can tap into my head yeah. and access that because I don't want people to know that. And it's, right. yeah, the thought that like what you do, like you said, with an immature brain can come back to bite you when you want to become a nurse or a teacher or you want to become a lawyer or whatever is unsettling. I think that there's uh, there's an onus on teachers to educate kids about it, but I also think that the onus is also on parents, society in general. I think people need to be a bit more um, responsible when mm. they're promoting social media so that kids better role models out there. And there's, there's lots of them, but there's also some really unsanitary ones. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think too, you know, especially at the moment, phones are banned at government, well, at schools. Um, and I can completely understand the reason behind that, but it doesn't stop social media from being a thing. You know, they can access it other ways and pretending it's not happening is not the way I don't believe. I do remember once going to a speech that the school organized and it was a police officer who was involved in, Mm. you know, I suppose scaring the internet for potential crimes and potential predators online. And she was talking about things like privacy. And I was there with the year eight group at the time. And to me, having a private Facebook account or Instagram account as a child seem like such a no-brainer, yet most of them were not private. Mm. Most of them were telling me that they were not, well, how do you get your likes then? How do you get your followers if it's private? No one's going to yeah. follow you unless they can see what you've got presenting. And that is just a really basic thought process that most of those young kids have because if you don't have yourself out there, how can you promote your brand or whatever it is you're presenting and how do you get likes? The sad thing is is that that age, you don't even know who you are, let alone who your brand is. Good God. Yeah. Take a breath, mate. Yeah, it's. I've had kids who have had their pages, like their, where would have been their Facebook page, hacked and they've had their faces used mm-hmm. on porn sites and it was awful because that girl was in my year 12 class and she was spiralling because of it and she was on private. So you can imagine what can happen when, mm. you know, she'd taken the steps to do the right thing and it still wasn't being done. So, yeah, I think that I think that it can be really great. Like social media can be really great for kids being in contact with each other, particularly at this time as well when they aren't seeing each other as much. Mm. I think that um, the fact that they can access each other on Instagram and stuff like that is really, really positive and it can keep up their social space. But I think that there needs to be, I think everyone's responsible. I think that the companies creating the product need to be, have tighter laws. Yeah. I think that 
parents have to be aware of what their kids have access to Mm. and I think teachers need to tell kids the importance of developing themselves before they start putting themselves online. Mm. It's kind of holistic. I completely agree. And kids need to use their brains. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess I can't make excuses for them either. But I also, as I said, I know as an adolescent that I'm very grateful no. that my adolescence was not recorded. Yeah, agreed. And l- like we said, there's there's accountability and there's also the difference between accountability and not having a fully developed brain. Mm. And it's they kids, teenagers make stupid choices because they can, you know, and they obviously don't tell their parents because yeah. what kids do. So there's there's like accountability and then there's a part where it's like, well, you're a child. So yeah, it's hard. It's a tough one. It is. I don't know. I don't, I don't use social media. So for this very reason. <laughs> yeah. I use Instagram mm. mainly to connect with other teachers, right? So clearly I have, I have a platform yeah. that's more professional anyway. And so if a student was to access my Instagram, it's pretty much what I would say in class. So it's not compromising for me, but that's how I've chosen to use it. Because of those exact things, I don't want my personal things out there because I need need to protect myself and kids need to protect themselves. Yeah. And there's also, people have got to understand that there's a point where your your teacher still has a life. If you encourage Mm. this um, open door policy where you're accessible 24-7, then you're creating a rod for your own back and you really only got yourself to blame, you know. Sorry, teachers. (laughs) So how do you see the role of a teacher now? What do you believe the role of a teacher is? For me, and it could not have it could not have been more apparent to me this year than any other year, it's the idea of developing a unique voice in a child rather than putting my voice onto them. I could not stress that enough. It's and I've always believed that. Like in my first five years of teaching, I was trying to be the strict, like full on teacher, this is how it is. And it's not my way. Like I am I'm much more of a sarcastic person and as soon as I stopped fighting against my natural instinct, I became a better teacher. Mm. I don't think I liked who I was when I was in my first five years. But as soon as I let go of my own ego and realised that they are very intelligent individual people who come from various walks of life who can teach me just as much as I can teach them, sometimes more. Mm. Like if I'm having a serious issue with technology, the kids are all over it. Yeah. There's they, they teach me things that... I don't know and I think it's important for me, particularly as an English teacher, to allow kids to develop a voice but to also understand the importance of listening to others and just because someone doesn't think like you doesn't mean that they're wrong. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the main role is no matter what you teach actually is to let the kid develop who they are. I completely agree. Do you think you had to shift the way you taught based on the more psychology-based subjects versus English? I think with psychology, it, there's a really fine line between kids thinking you're a psychologist <laughs> and being a psychology teacher. Yes, okay. And they start to self-reference a lot of stuff in um, psych. So you have to constantly remind them that they are not to self-diagnose, that you're not you're not a psychologist, that you're there as a disseminator of psychology information. You, you understand how the human brain works, but you're absolutely not qualified to assist. So mm. in that sense, I connected with kids in that way, like on a very, well, literally head, brain, mental state. In English, because you're allowing so much, dis- well, I allow a lot of discussion to take place. I very rarely write on the board, mainly because I don't enjoy doing it because I've got to write around the right way and that annoys me. <laughs> 
because of the amount of discussion that I generate in a class, I get to know kids on a level that I wouldn't even know was possible. Like the things you hear and the stuff that they can come up with is really quite interesting. Sometimes you can hear other people's voices through them. Mm. So you've got to, you've got to dig a bit deeper to see what they truly think and then they start to realise that actually maybe I don't originally think what I thought. I've just listened to other people. I haven't really sat down and thought about it. And it's nice to see them go from one state to the other. And there's plenty of times where I don't agree with what they say, but that's not my job. My job is to get them to think for themselves. It was interesting. I had another teacher. They're putting out like advice for teachers um, on Instagram and they've got like, you know, some teachers that are, you know, offering their discipline strategies or whatever. And the one that I've been invited on at the moment is what is essential stationary for a teacher as a secondary teacher. And for me, (laughs) I know it's like, and I get it for some, but there's none. none. For me, there's actually no essential stationary for me as a teacher because there's none. If I went into class with a a rigid lesson plan, I would be, unfair to those kids because what if other learning is able to take place in that space I'm never going to shut that down I'm never going to shut an opportunity down for learning yeah to get through and to power through something I'm just not no, absolutely not. so it was just a bit- no and it's funny because say in my first mm-hmm. couple of years I planned like every new teacher does to the point where it was actually insane uh-huh. and now I don't plan my lessons at all I plan my resources so I will be like okay they're going to use this handout mm-hmm. at some point but I I don't plan my lessons at all now I literally walk into class and if I've got a whiteboard marker great but I barely use it I the amount of times I take my backpack to class <laughs> um and have stuff in it and I don't open it once and I'm like well that was a waste of time and space because yeah like I don't and you see it too when the electricity goes off mm. and people panic because they can't get their laptop and it's like no no just talk to them <laughs> it'll be okay <laughs> It was interesting. I, were, I remember when um, I first got into teaching Year 12 Biology and um, our scores weren't particularly great. And so admin were supporting us in looking outside and seeing what other schools were doing. And um, I went to a school that was, that obviously got really, really good results, select entry, which, you know, probably speaks for itself. Mm. And what was really validating was that I saw three yeah. Year 12 Biology classes run. One woman was so incredibly passionate about the subject she didn't really have, I think she had a PowerPoint behind her that she flicked through every now and then just as like a, a stimulus for her discussion, but she really didn't discuss too much or didn't, you know, sort of spend too much time with it. And the kids were real. I was super engaged. I was just listening to her. I thought she was incredible. And then I saw another teacher that, a first year teacher actually, that really clung to that technology. And I know what that's like because I was exactly the same. I needed the next slide to come up first before I started talking Whereas now I'll just sort of talk and the slides will be like three or four behind me. I'm like, oh, shit, I've already covered all of that because I'm already in the flow. Like, you know what that's like. When you know your stuff, you kind of just smooth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's, bless them, like they do need it. Like like I said, it takes about five years for you to get past that point where you don't need tech like that, that resource anymore. But it's now whenever I see a PowerPoint, I'm like, oh, I'm only (laughs) using this because my kids will probably complain that another class has used it and I haven't. <laughs> so I usually just go yeah. back to him. I'm like, look, here, here it is. It's like, here it is. Good luck. <laughs> now, I would rather 
talk to them. I always go off on a tangent with a stupid story to solidify the point I'm trying to make. What I found I remember really interesting in that experience was I saw, I did see one other class where the technology didn't work. So this teacher wanted to get a YouTube clip and probably the YouTube clip went for about 10 minutes, five minutes maybe, Mm. and it wasn't working. Now she spent... I'm going to say at least half the class trying to get that YouTube clip to work. What I found amazing was the culture of that particular school was so ingrained in them that they just had their own work to do and they just did it. So she was trying to fluff around with the technology, get the YouTube going, and they just opened their books (laughs) and they did work. It's so funny, and I think about this all the time. Two minutes. Wow. I give myself two minutes. That YouTube clip's not working. We're moving through because I'm going to get conversations about the weekend. I'm going to get conversations about what shoes they want to wear. I'm going to get conversations about what TV show they're watching. Like yeah. if I don't power through and keep and keep the focus, then the lesson is gone. Like I don't have. I don't. I don't know if you feel this, but I never felt that I had the luxury to spend 25 minutes trying to get a YouTube clip working. No. No, and the thing is, like, I would normally walk in and I'd be like, right, talk to yourselves while I sort this out and if I look like I'm drowning, someone please come up and save me and if we drown together, (laughs) great. Um, And then I usually just go, well, that's not working. I'll do an interpretive dance of what the YouTube clip was going to be. There is no (laughs) way I can spend that time doing that. And if that happened at a school where I grew up, Mm-hmm. Like if, if that happened at the school where I grew up, we would have thrown a desk at the teacher and been like, bye, we're out, mate. You you suck. Bye. <laughs> no way. We, we were so tame. The worst we did was put tampons in the chalk box. That was about as bad as it got at the old Catholic <laughs> girls' school. <laughs> the, the worst thing that happened at our school were like proper, proper, proper beatings, like bad. And to a kid got his collarbone busted once because a guy just threw him up in the air and yeah so that's just hectic but, but, but also people are teaching in that right like that's actually reality. yeah it's very um I think it, it kind of creates that um mentality too that when you're younger you can be very much a um Sydney Poitier or Michelle friggin what's her like name that, yeah where you go into a school and you change the world and then you realize yeah you're like yeah I probably can't <laughs> but I'll just do what I can <laughs> but it's it, it is a bit of a drop to yeah. come down from that I don't know I felt definitely like I could I could change the world and I definitely had to realize yeah like I got told in my last year of university that my essay was too idealistic and I said to him I'd rather be idealistic than completely dead with no like desire to teach and on my very first lesson ever when I became a teacher I got told to f off and I was like well here's my moment here's my moment to change the world and I did not <laughs> uh, we've, all, we've all had the names we've all had the names for sure you just but it gets easier right it just rolls off the duck yeah. you don't realize you realize that it's not really about you the first couple of years it feels very personal oh yeah and it's again it's just a matter of going hang on I'm the adult here and sometimes you react I react and I'm like I can throw down just as good as a kid can but it's yeah you just gotta go that well these things happen bye <laughs> Whatever. So what kind of advice do you reckon you would give now as an experienced expert teacher, as you say, to teachers in training? Uh, not to think too far ahead and not to um, let their ego get the better of them, that they need to know their audience. So they need to know who they're dealing with, what their kids' backgrounds are, talk to people at the school who know the kids 
and don't try to be friends with them. That's not that's not the point. It's try to understand that they are people and they are not, you know, they're not cyborgs. They, they could be having a really bad day. They could be having a great day. And you've got to gauge that as you walk into a room and you've got to gauge 26 of them. And don't be a dick about it. <laughs> Sorry. But I think the biggest thing I've always done is whatever, however negative an experience I've had with a kid, it ends when they leave that door that day. Mm. So when they come in the next day to the yeah. new class, the slate is clean and we start again. I never hold a grudge. Because I don't think you just have no idea. And I say that yeah. from my perspective too. Kids don't know what I'm going through as a teacher. You don't know what your teacher's going through in that lesson. There could be 400 other things no. that they're trying to cope with. No. And yeah, sometimes it's not a good lesson. Sometimes you've had bad news. Sometimes there's so many other things mm. going on. And I try and give the same respect and the same understanding to my students. I yeah, think. I think the important thing is to remember is that everybody in that room is a human being mm-hmm. and there's lots of different emotions and lots of, lots of different stages of life occurring and sometimes they look to you like the only role model they have and you could be the only role model that they have and that's just life unfortunately. So yeah, you can have you can tell a kid off no worries if they're not doing the right thing, but yeah, you got to drop it at the door and you can go home and have a cry about it because we've all done it. Yep. But you just got to go, oh, well, mm. move on. Um, and ultimately, those I can guarantee you kids who say awful things to people probably feel awful about it afterwards because it's pretty hard to find a kid who doesn't have a redeeming quality in them. I completely agree. Can you talk to me about what your day looks like as a teacher? No, Not now, maybe in COVID during this time, but in an, av- an average <laughs> yes. day. So I get to work quite early. I get to work at about 7.30 each day so that I can get my head around the day before the staff room gets too busy because it gets to a certain point where no work can be done because, which is fine, people are socialising, but I need to, I'm an early bird, so I'll get up and get things done then. And it usually revolves around running between classes. So I normally teach a VCE and a junior class in the same year so that I have balance between the two because it's very full on to teach all VCE and it is very difficult to teach all junior classes. So Mm. I'll run between those classes trying to switch my mentality from one to the other. There will be times when I don't eat during the day. I know there's a lot of teachers who don't eat during the day Mm. and you drink a lot of tea or a lot of coffee so that you, Mm. you know, you stay awake and sometimes you don't go to the toilet. (laughs) Because you're like, I do not have time. But it's also... Yeah, that's that's such a challenge for me now. Oh, yeah, it'd be bloody awful. I'm probably feeding into the stereotype a bit, but I know no matter how hard my day is that at 3.15, if I want to, I can turn my brain off. I might be in a meeting, but my brain isn't. And, <laughs> yeah, so we have that advantage, I think, of that. And a lot of teachers will argue against me and say, no, we work really, you know, long hours into the night. And, yes, we do. Like, there will be times when I can go home and I will be marking and I'll be marking until 10 o'clock at night. One of the things I want to dispel is the idea that, and I guess this comes as you get older and the better you get at teaching, is that teachers have it easier in some respects, so yes, we we get these amazing school holidays, and I'm not going to lie, and we work, um, you know, long hours marking, but we also don't have it as hard as some other careers do. And I have quite a few friends who are in industry who work ludicrous hours, who haven't had a holiday for three years, who get paid less than I get paid, don't have the joy of having a kid say thank you at the end of a lesson. They don't get the instant gratification that we get. So Mm. while, yes, we work very hard, we also 
I don't think businesses and education should be at a battle of who has it harder, who has it easier. I think there's different types of difficulties in either one. Yeah. So yeah, but my day, my day is my day is good. I'd rather be busy. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather be busy than bored. We've we've talked a little bit about teacher burnout. Um, we've seen it for sure, and I think that we've almost experienced it at some point and sort of found ways to come back. What kind of advice would you give for teachers on how to manage that? I think teacher burnout will always happen between your first and your seventh year. On average, I think a lot of people leave the profession five years in because they go hard and they go fast and they do burnout. I think I would say to younger teachers, go into your first couple of years and just try to be the best classroom teacher that you can be. Don't take on extracurricular activities. Don't do all the extra work, even though the school will push you to do that because in essence, it helps you get your job. But if you go into teaching for the reasons that I assume most people do, and that's to connect with younger kids and to educate, then you should be trying your best to be a good educator. And if you do that and you ask for help when you need it and you use the resources available to you, then you will be the best teacher you can be and you will get your job back and you will avoid burnout. And I think people need to really be aware of their colleagues and most teachers, as you said, want to support people, want to educate people, want to help people. So if a younger teacher was to ask for, for help, there is help and there are mentors. There are people available to you always because teachers actually, they're helpers. That's who they are. That's what they are at their core. Yeah. And they're, and they're massive like, and I say this in a really positive way, we're massive nerds. We love <laughs> to create things. Like yeah. We love to learn. Like yeah. That's part of who we are. So it's like if someone said to me, can you help me create this thing? I'd be like, yeah, man, I'm down. Like, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. So it's just like it, it comes down to everything. you just got to let go of your ego mm. and um, people will help you. What are you really passionate about as a teacher and what is it that you want to impart to your students? I think I always say to my kids, I don't care whether you get good grades or not. I want you to love this. I want you to love what you're doing in class and I want you to love the fact that reading can be good and discussion can be good. I want them to understand that um, things aren't always going to stay the same, that it's not if you're in a bad moment, it's not always going to be bad. Just as what, just as the same as that sometimes good things aren't always going to stay and that you've got to be willing to adapt and move with the world in order to live in it. You've always been a huge advocate for mental health. I often used to find that you were a real a go-to for me as a teacher to support me um, and also to give me advice and practical tips on how to support my kids. What are some of the suggestions that you would give to your students on how to manage their mental health and anxiety? Obviously, from the the expert level that you that you have, and not to suggest that you know you're a psychologist, as you say, but from a teaching perspective, what kinds of advice and support do you like to to give your kids? I think most teachers who teach Year Twelve would know that the majority of your energy goes into helping their welfare mm. more so than their actual grades. So I need to let kids. I try to get kids to know that feeling an emotion is important. They can be as angry as they want. They can be as sad as they want. But it's important to feel that emotion and to never diminish your emotion. I don't like the saying "someone is always worse off than you" because I feel like that diminishes someone's existing pain. We all know that someone's probably having a harder time than we are, but that doesn't mean that you're not hurting. So I try to get kids to acknowledge the fact that it's a crappy day and or whatever and we will get through it. They need to know that it will not be forever and that so long as they're feeling something, it is a good thing and that they should always reach out for help. Kids need to know that they have a voice and sometimes they don't get that at home sometimes they don't get that wherever they are and so all they want to do is be heard 
and it could be about what we as an adult deem as the most ridiculous thing, like, oh, my boyfriend didn't text me back. Mm. I have a meltdown about that now. <laughs> like, as an adult, I would have a heart attack. So yeah. I think that you've got to acknowledge the fact that, yes, they're young. It's, you know, they'll get past it, but it's valid to them at that point in time. And they've got to understand that, like, there'll be, there'll be people there for them if they need it. So, yeah, it's it's awful to think that yeah. they're not old enough to necessarily know what's happening to them. I was listening to M. Rossiano has a new podcast called Emsolation and she interviewed a friend of hers called Jamila Rizvi and I don't know much about her except that after listening to the podcast she – was very impressive to me. She's an advocate for female opportunities and humanity's growth overall, which was really exciting. But the interesting thing about her life is that she's been living with a brain tumor for the past two and a half years, a brain tumor that once operated on will continue to grow back. And I think from what I understand will be for the rest of her life. And she is writing a book with Rosie Waterland, who is an Australian writer, um, an advocate for mental health due to her own intense experiences with it. She has experienced PTSD and a, a number of other clinical mental health conditions. Um, and they're writing a book called Broken Brains. Um, I think that's the working title, but I think it is an amazing title. Yeah. And they talk about society's reaction to a physical brain injury versus mental illness. What do you think about the way society sees them differently? I think over time, the awareness of mental illness has gotten better. It's funny to hear how people say now teenage depression and whatnot has increased. It's like, no, 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 it's always been there. We just haven't been tracking it. So I find it frustrating that despite the awareness that they're still very much put on the back burner when it comes to certain things, just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. And sometimes... With physical trauma, and I'm not talking about the brain tumour in this sense, I'm just talking about a broken leg uh, or something like that. Sometimes with physical trauma, it will heal and it may not be Mm. the exact same great leg that it once was, but sometimes with a mental illness, it doesn't heal. And it's definitely not the brain that it once was. And it's Mm. someone has had to build their life around something that's happened to them that they may or may not be aware of and people need to be really conscious of the fact that just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. And my kids, like I, for full disclosure, have had depression since I was 15 and I'm now 39 and I have had anxiety for well over 10 years and I'm on medication for it and my I am I used to be ashamed of telling that to my classes but I tell them now and I'm not an advocate like if you don't want to go on medication for mental illness then you don't have to but I think it's important for people to understand that if you looked at me from afar I'm usually quite happy bubbly I have a very good um Mm. persona that I put on for my teaching and the kids think that it's all sunshine lollipops which is great but I will also say to them Mm. and I had this discussion not that long ago with my 12s that there are times when I need to lie down on the floor and have a full-blown panic attack because nothing else is working for me the one thing that I think is detrimental to say to a person and this is a child or anybody is um that's okay just try to think about something happy no it's not going to work. So just be, don't be too flippant about it. And the other thing is too is that like as teachers, we can only say so much to kids about their mental health because it's actually out of our jurisdiction. So you've got to be careful. Yeah, and that's right. And I think that's the thing. Like even we were told, you know, you've got to be careful about giving careers advice if you're not a career teacher. I mean, you certainly need to be, you need to be really careful about the advice you were giving out when you are not qualified 
Yeah. Um, and there are people, obviously, to refer kids on to. Exactly. Just for your own protection. Yeah, exactly. All right, last question for you. What are your hopes for education in general in the future? I just hope that the education system starts to pay attention to the fact that kids still need solid grounding in core subjects, so literacy, numeracy, and now, to be honest with you, not now, but history is super important and geography, I would say, sciences as well. So your basic core subjects. But I think that at some point they need to pay attention to the idea that there's other desires out there. So, you know, maybe you could start introducing more diverse subjects at a a younger age. I'm not really sure. But it's that idea too of like helping develop a holistic person. So the idea that no matter what subject you're in, a child should feel confident enough to be able to voice their opinion. I think that's a hard part. Sometimes there's flaws societally. Sometimes there's flaws departmentally, which to be honest, I don't think are that easy to fix either. Um, and then there's, you know, teaching, flaws within teaching and curriculum and all of that. So it's it's a hard one. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so great to catch up with you during COVID. It was great to be on. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think <laughs> your podcast is amazing and I love the fact that you're letting ha- teachers have their own voice. So yay. Well, thank you for being one of the first. All right, I will catch up with you soon. Thanks, mate.